So again, that's Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 through 22. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of the place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. You guys can take a seat. You know, as we uh, work to raise money to buy this building, as I was talking about earlier, to kind of a physical location in our city, if, if it's only about a, a physical building, we kind of miss the point, right? And one of the other things that we've challenged one another in, or I've challenged you guys in, as we think about these next uh, months, uh, 2022, uh, through the end of the year especially, is that each household in particular, each household that's a part of our church in particular, would be praying for another household. That you would, uh, as, a, as a family, have another family or another household in mind and go, we're going to pray for, for this household that they would come to know Jesus. And that, that if God would be so gracious, he would use us as a, being a part of, of that process. But uh, that can feel at times like a daunting thing. I've, you know, we can think I've shared God's word before and, 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 and nothing happened. Like it didn't, it didn't work. It didn't work. I guess I'm just not good at evangelism. I guess I'm just not good at sharing the gospel. The question that comes to our mind is how does God take people who are far from him and bring them near to him? How does he do that? And it makes me think about, uh, particularly very personally, it makes me think about my brother and I. My brother's two years older than me. Our experiences growing up were, were not exactly the same by any stretch of the imagination. As, as we got older, our experiences got different, right, because of decisions we made, etc. But, but, but uh, very similar, very similar. We grew up in the same family with all the good and the bad that came with our particular family, right? 
We went to the same church, to the same youth group. We heard the same sermons. We went to very similar Sunday school classes. It's all very similar. If anything, if anything, in truth, he understood the data points of the Bible far better than I did. Frankly, he's just smarter than me. He always has been. He always will be. Yet, I became a Christian, was baptized, and over time, uh, have, uh, my life has been continually transformed by the work of the Spirit through God's Word, and my brother didn't. He wasn't. And as the years went on, my life continued to move one direction, and his life continued to move in an opposite trajectory. What happened? What happened with me that didn't happen with him? In Genesis, we have this story, or the part of Genesis we're in right now, we have this story with two brothers as well, Esau and Jacob, right? And we've been looking at this in particular the last couple of weeks. We talked about how God chose Jacob and not Esau. And up to this point, Esau's rebellion has been really evident, right? We've talked about how he's rejected God. He's rejected God's promises. He's rejected God's blessings. But Jacob, we need to understand, Jacob hasn't exhibited faith either. Jacob, while maybe not by our view, by our perspective, not as bad as Esau, he's not had the faith of Abraham by any stretch of the imagination, He's not even had the faith of Isaac, his father. He's the kid whose mom thinks he's an angel, but we all know the reality of the thing, right? We all know he's a little punk, okay? That's Jacob. He doesn't reject God's promises and blessings so overtly as Esau, but when his mom proposes to him a means by which he could obtain blessing from his father, it reveals his true motivations, doesn't it? Do you remember this? He, he, his motivation is just to save his own skin, right? To save his life right then, right now in, on earth. His motivation is not to be in this covenant relationship with the living God of the world like his father and his grandfather were. His motivation is not knowing and glorifying God, it's saving his own skin. And this is important. Because it's true that God forgives sin, it's true that God saves us from hell, But if we reduce salvation down to merely that, we've missed the bigger picture. If we reduce salvation down to merely that, what happens is people do things externally because they want to save themselves, but in reality, they're not actually Christians. They're deceived. They're self-deceived. They look the part to some degree, they go to church, they grow up in God's family just like Jacob grew up in God's family, but they're only seeking to save themselves. And too often, too often, this is important, too often at some critical moment in their life, the reality of their heart is exposed, and it could be years, it could be decades down the road. 
But at some critical moment, the reality of their heart is exposed when some other threat that seems now bigger to them than hell, like, I don't know, being cut off from the sin that they love or being cut off from the approval of other people that they crave, when that threat gets bigger in their heart than the threat of hell, they show themselves to be what they always were. People seeking to save themselves on their own terms. And those terms might sound Jesus-esque. They might be Christian-y. But now the terms have changed. And they've abandoned church. They've abandoned the Bible. They've abandoned all those things that they had presented themselves as being before. But what God does in redeeming a people is different. It is forgiveness of sins, yes, but it is adoption as sons. It is knowing and loving and glorifying God and trusting in His promises. It's being sanctified and changed as we continue to see Christ more fully and pursue Him. You see, Jacob deceived his father, but God is not fooled in this story. Jacob deceived his father so easily, just as we, so too many churchgoers, deceive the others in church and others in their life and say, oh yeah, I'm presenting myself as a Christian, but I'm really not, but God is not fooled. And yet in our passage this morning, what we see is, is that God turns a deceiver into a believer. How does he do that? We need some of that in our world. This is not a shift that depends on Jacob, though it does cause a response in Jacob. And so I want, I want us to see this morning is this, that we only change our way because God makes a way. You and I, we humans, sinful people, we only change our way because God makes a way. We're going to see this in two distinct sections of our passage. First, it's God's communication to Jacob through a, dream, through a dream. And second, it's Jacob's response to God when he wakes up. And so this first section we're going to call effectual calling. How God reveals a way for deceivers. How God reveals a way for all of us. If you don't know, you before Jesus, before you come to Christ, before you've been converted, right? You are in deception. You are being deceived and you are deceiving. So this is how God reveals a way for deceivers. Second is convert, we're going to call conversion. How believers turn their way to God. So I'm going to use this story to kind of define some theological terms for us, help us to understand what they mean. And in between, there's going to be kind of a little bit of an uh, intermission, a brief intermission in between these two points, and we're going to call that regeneration. Regeneration is what links these two things together, okay? So effectual calling. I want to start with a little bit of a precursor to effectual calling that really sets the stage for it and helps us to understand why it's so critical. And, and it's this, God's call is for lost sinners. 
God's call is for lost sinners. Look at verses 10 and 11. Jacob left Beersheba and went to Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. Remember last week, Jacob is sent off by his father. Go find a wife from your mother's people, not from here. And Jacob goes off by himself, and he has basically nothing. And we know he has basically nothing because the dude finds a stone to use as a pillow, okay? Now, when's the last time any of you guys used a rock for a pillow? Anyone? Ryder says he's used a rock for a pillow. That doesn't go very well for my, you know, genetic heritage there. I don't know. But uh, anyway, um, the point is this. He, he, he doesn't have a my pillow, you know. He's got a rock. He hasn't got anything. He doesn't got anything. If we are to understand how critical it is that God would effectively call, we must understand that before God calls us, we are wandering in the wilderness of our sin empty-handed. I want you to understand, as a precursor to this point, that before God effectually calls us, You have nothing, nothing to help you to be saved in and of yourself. The only thing you have, the only prerequisite that you you meet in order to be saved is that you've sinned and need salvation. That's it. We are lost and alone, just like Jacob. But the hope is, and the wonderful thing of this passage is, God finds lost and lonely people. He finds them where they're at, with stones as pillows. And he speaks to them. We have nothing to offer God. But because God had chosen Jacob, he eventually will call Jacob. Second thing, God's call, this might seem kind of plain, uh, but, but God's call comes from God. It's important. This is an important distinction. God's call comes from God. Let me explain. Verses 12 and 13a, we see this setting of Jacob's dream vision, right? And it says that there's a ladder from earth to heaven, and the angels are are going up and down on this ladder. Now, here's the tricky part. It says the angels are ascending and descending on it, and the Lord is above it. And this suggests that it refers to the ladder, right? And we could understand God's angels as his messengers traversing this communicative channel, if you will, that God has now opened up. But the same masculine-gendered pronoun that's translated it could also be translated him. If it has as its referent, if it's referring to a male person, and I think in this passage we would be better perhaps better to understand that pronoun as referring not to the latter, but to Jacob. I think it would be better to translate this as some translations translate it on him, above him, rather than above it. And so, we think to ourselves, we read this and we think to ourselves, well, does God's effectual calling only come through visions? 
like, do, for God to effectually call me to be saved, do I need to, like, fall asleep with a stone under my head, and God has, gives me a vision, and it's like, oh, I wake up, you know, and it, that's how it works. Well, how does, is this passage used in the New Testament? Fast forward to John 1. Jesus is calling his disciples to follow him. And he, and he calls Philip, and Philip, it says, goes and finds this guy named Nathaniel. And Nathaniel, it says, uh, he says to Nathaniel, we've found him of whom Moses in the law, that's Genesis, right, where we are talking right now, uh, whom uh, Moses in the law wrote. And Nathaniel, ever the straight shooter, Hearing where Jesus is from says to him, can anything come from the, good come from there? But Philip insists to Nathaniel, no, come and see. Come and see this guy. You need to come and hear this Jesus. And so as Nathaniel is approaching Jesus, Jesus, seeing him still you know, a distance away, says, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Now that line may slip past you and me when we read it as we're reading John 1. But the Jewish reader would understand. The Jewish reader would understand Israelite comes from Jacob's name change. A name change that's going to happen in this same location 20 years later on the day before he arrives back at his father's house. And so here it's the first night he leaves his father's house. This thing happens. He sees this vision. 20 years later, we'll get to this passage later on. It's the night before he arrives back at his father's house and God changes his name from Jacob to Israel. And so when, when the, uh, Jesus says, an Israelite indeed, he's referring back. And we know he's referring back to Jacob because then he says, in whom there is no deceit. Now tell me, Who's been, uh, if you were an Israelite and you heard uh, a deceit, who of all of the forefathers of your faith would you think of? But Jacob, the deceiver. Deceit, it's a play on this sanctifying journey that Jacob is about to go on that starts right here. Nevertheless, Nathaniel is like, dude, how do you know me? I'm paraphrasing. Dude, how do you know me? How do you know that there's no deceit in me? How do you know this? And Jesus says, I saw you when Philip came to talk to you under the fig tree. And Nathaniel's like, whoa. Whoa, you really are the Messiah. You, you, you knew you could see where I was when Philip came and talked to me. You must be the Messiah. And Jesus goes, uh, that's impressive to you? John 1, 51, he says this, and he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He directly quotes Jacob's words, but he says it's on the Son of Man. You see, Jesus is the true and better Jacob. He's the fulfillment of who Jacob is. It's, it's seen in Christ. And God has opened up a way for communication between himself. It was built on Jacob in this dream, but in Christ is where it's really found. Through Christ himself, 
This covenant-making God is communicating to his people, the recipients of the covenant, by way of his first son, Jesus. And so, you need to understand that we, as Christians, we as the church, we communicate the gospel, we read the gospel, uh, uh, you know, in God's word, we might preach it or proclaim it or share it with someone, but, but, but God's effectual call is God's, is something that God speaks through that inwardly in someone's life. He reveals it through the gospel. And that's really the third point here that I want to make. God's call reveals truth. It reveals the truth of who He is and His unconditional covenant. Look at what He says. Unconditional meaning it depends totally on God. It depends not at all on Jacob. He declares to him, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham. And He declares to him what He will do for Jacob, I will give you and your offspring this land. Uh, your offspring will be numerous. All the families of the earth will be blessed through them. I will keep you wherever you go and I'll bring you back to here. I won't leave you, but I will do what I promise. He shares the same unconditional promises that he shared with Abraham. He shares now with Jacob. And just as Jacob points forward to Christ, so this covenant of grace points forward to the new covenant the covenant of grace that's fulfilled in the gospel. God's call, it comes through the communication of his word, through the communication of his gospel, but not everyone who hears the word necessarily believes. And just because I stand up here and share the gospel doesn't mean that every single time I share the gospel, that if you don't believe in the gospel right now, suddenly you will believe in the gospel. Why? What gives theologians Theologians distinguish this in two terms. They talk about the external call and the internal call. And the external call is something that we as a church do, we as covenant people do. We share, we proclaim the gospel, but the internal call is something that only God does. It's this effectual call that we're talking about. To put it another way, it's the difference between divine action and human agency. A human agent declares the gospel, yet God, God may not act by calling himself. Yet, at the same time, God has purposed to act through human agency as his people declare his word. And so though the, the form maybe has shifted through salvation history, God is consistent in the way he works. And Jacob sees this vision, and through this vision, this revelation of the truth of who God is, I am the God of Abraham. These are the things I'm going to do for you. Now, God chooses to share that truth through us as we declare this is who God is. You can know him through Christ, and this is what Christ has done for you who believe in him. In Genesis 28, We see, or in, I should say, yeah, in Genesis 28, yeah, we see God's call come through human vision. But John 1, 51, it takes that and it says, God's revealed himself perfectly through his son, Jesus Christ. We don't need a, a vision and a dream. We have Jesus. And we have what he's done written right 
here and we can open it up whenever we want and we can read it. All right, that's the first scene, that's the first section, that's God's effectual call, but we've got a little bit of an intermission here, a little intermission that I'm calling regeneration. The dream ends with this promise that God would not leave that the Lord would not leave Jacob. And Christ's last promise to his disciples is that he would not leave them either. In fact, he promises to send his spirit to work through them and in them. And in Ezekiel and in, in Jeremiah, we're told that God will put a new spirit in us and remove our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh. And in John 3, we also see that Jesus says that we must be born again, born of the spirit in order to see the kingdom of God. In 1 Peter 1, 23 and 25, we're told that, that, that we are born anew as the Spirit works in us through the living and abiding Word of God. So the Word of God, we hear it, and the Spirit uses the Word of God to do something in us, something that we call traditionally regeneration. He takes our hearts of stone that are resistant to God's Word, that are resistant to the gospel, that are resistant to faith, and He makes them hearts of flesh that are willing to receive it. So while these three concepts, God's call, regeneration, conversion, are theologically distinct, what I want you to understand is that there are three parts of what we would call salvation. And there are other parts to salvation, but these are the three we're talking about today. And so they go together. One does not happen without the others. And what we see in verse 16 is that Jacob wakes up from his physical sleep. And what I want to suggest to you is that when Jacob wakes up from his physical sleep, he wakes up from his spiritual sleep as well. He wakes up and something has changed because God, when he decides to do something, he affects that thing definitely. When he sets out to accomplish something, he does not fail ever. By the power of the Spirit, through regeneration, he gives new birth, new life, as 2 Corinthians describes it. The disposition of the soul is changed from pointing away from God, as Jacob has been, to pointing toward God, as we see in this next section. In this next section, I'm calling conversion. Now, now, now this is how believers turn their way to God. And it is an appropriate and consequent response to God's effectual call and regeneration. Conversion is an inward process, I want you to understand. It's an inward process, not an outward process. Though the results of conversion will be seen outwardly. You see, there's a difference between the effects of something and, and maybe the evidences of that thing. But the outward evidence from how Jacob responds clues us into the inward effects that have happened. Okay? Okay? So conversion, it has two elements, two elements, repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. And these two things are linked together. They're linked together. There's not one without the other. Uh, it might be helpful for you, uh, maybe this is helpful, to think of repentance as being 
the, the backwards-looking element of conversion and faith being the forwards-looking element. Now, repentance is this godly sorrow that results in an inward change, that change of disposition, the, the, the change in the qualities of someone's mind and character. Uh, one way to understand repentance is to talk about uh, the fact that we would have a change of view, a change of emotions, and a change of will. And we'll talk about each of those in turn. Faith, faith is a conviction of the truth founded on testimony. And we can think about faith as having three parts as well. There's knowledge, assent, and trust. So I want to consider each of these in Jacob's response. In verse 16, we see that a change of view and an acknowledgement of God happens. He wakes up and what does he say? What's the first words out of his mouth? Surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. I went to bed with my head on a rock. God was here the whole time. How foolish of me. There's a change in his perspective about God. Certainly, certainly he's heard about his father's God. Certainly he's heard about his grandfather's God. It would be surprising if he hadn't heard the stories that had happened in Abraham and Isaac's lives that we have looked at over the past weeks. But only through the spirit does true knowledge come. He doesn't wake up and go, man, what a dream. I am never going to sleep with my head on a rock again. Whew. And I don't know, I must have ate some bad tacos last night. No. He wakes up and he acknowledges that God is God. There is truth we must hear, something we must know, and, and, and there's a corresponding change of view. But, but lots of people have an epiphanies in their life, right? Lots of people have those moments where it's like, oh man, how did I not see that before? So what is different here? Well, conversion, it goes further than that. There's also a change in emotions, an assent or an approval, an agreement to the truth. And I want to be clear, this change of emotions, it's not feelings detached from knowledge. Sometimes we talk about feelings or we talk about emotions as if they're completely detached from knowledge. I, I do thinking over here and I do feeling over here, but that's not what I am talking about here. You see, Romans 12.2 tells us that there's a, uh, there's a transformation that happens by the renewing of our minds, right, that results in doing God's will. And so while I may feel a lot of things, these emotions are grounded rightly in God's truth, and as we'll see, directed rightly towards his will. In verse 17, it says that Jacob was afraid and filled with awe. Consistently in the Bible, anyone, any believer who gets a glimpse a greater glimpse of who God is, responds in two ways, fear and awe. That's how they respond. And these are, these are emotional responses, right? Fear and awe are emotional things, but they're not just, just emotions. They're emotions that are based in the truth of who God is that that person is now seeing. And fear is, is consistently caused by a realization of one's own sinfulness. Someone comes into the presence of God and they realize, I am a sinner in comparison to this holy God. And awe, awe comes from a realization that I didn't realize how powerful and holy and, and, and unique and, and just immense God 
is. And so Moses, when he, when he comes before the burning bush, he removes his sandals. The people of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai, they tremble. And Isaiah, when he's, when he's brought into the throne room of God, says, woe is me. That's the response. That those who God is converting have. And this is the point in which we see a real difference with Esau. You see, what's described in Hebrews 12 is this. It says, it says to see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And this is like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. What I want you to understand is Esau, Esau was not chosen and called. Regeneration did not happen. And then we had a change of view about his birthright, that we had a change of view about his blessing, and, he, and though he even expressed that emotionally with tears, his disposition was not changed. It was a sorrow, a sorrow that was born out of, uh, a sorrow for the consequences of his sin, rather than a sorrow for his actual sin. It was a sorrow that says, man, this is a bummer that I have to deal with these consequences, with this punishment, rather than a sorrow that was like, I was wrong. I sinned against God. You see the difference. You know the difference in your marriage. When your spouse does something foolish and you get frustrated about it, and they're kind of like, well, I'm, I'm really sorry that you're upset at me. And you're like, hold on a second. <laughs> Time out. <laughs> are you sorry for the thing you did? Or are you just sorry that I'm upset at you now and you have to deal with that? You understand the difference. The person who says, I've come to know God, but also does not say, I am much more sinful than I ever knew is, not a, is a person that does not actually know the God of the Bible. And part of faith is assent, approval, agreement. And it's further seen in, in Jacob setting this pillar up. You see, stones were set up in his day as a witness to agreements. The names held meaning related to the namer, what the namer believes to be true. And so that's him setting that stone up saying these things are true. God himself is here, visited me. And finally, there's a change of will and trust in God. By will, I mean that faculty uh, that the Bible often calls our heart where we decide things. We make a decision. We all want to act like our minds make our decisions, but let's be honest, the mind will often justify what our heart desires, right? My heart desires something and my mind makes up a reason why it's okay for me to pursue that desire. Some sort of justification for it. But God has to change our hearts so that the knowledge of Him, to which we now agree, right, that we now know, we now agree, points us actually in the right direction. Knowledge grounds repentant emotions. Knowledge with right emotions, has a result. A decision to renounce sin and idolatry in which we were trusting 
and instead to lead a life of obedience to Christ, trusting in Him instead. And so we come to this last few verses, and, and I think these last few verses in 20 to 22, it's a bit confusing on the surface with kind of our 21st century American mind, and it took me a little bit of time to, to kind of uh, look at this and consider it. But it causes us to presume that Jacob is responding to God's unconditional promises with kind of a conditional deal. Okay, God makes these unconditional promises. Okay, I'm going to make this conditional deal back with him. Like, like when we pray, oh God, I'll, I'll stop sinning if you keep me from these consequences for my sin. Or, or God, I'll start giving if you would help me to just get out of this financial mess I'm in. That kind of a thing, that kind of bargaining with God that maybe we do sometimes. Bargaining with him according to our own terms. But, but that would be a misunderstanding of how these kind of vows worked in Jacob's day. Notice that each element that Jacob prays in this vow is merely repeating back to the promises that God has already made to him, that God has already made unconditionally. He isn't asking God to do anything God didn't already say he was going to do anyway. He's not asking God to do something for him, like, okay, God, if I do this, then, then you do that, right? No, God's already said, I'm going to do this no matter what. No matter who you are or what you do, this is my unconditional promise to you. Listen, Jacob would be really terrible at making deals if he was bargaining right here, right? It'd be like if you came to me and said, okay, Cody, I'll give you $100. And then I was like, well, well no, I got a better deal. You give me $100 and I'll give you a car. It's like, I just already told you I'd give you $100. What are you talking about? Right? God says, he prays back God, that God would be, be with him and to keep him, to, to bring him back to his father's house, to provide for him, to be his God, etc. All the things that God has already said he was going to do. And so quite the opposite of what we might initially think, Jacob's vow is actually a declaration of his decision to trust in God and God's promises instead of in himself as he has been. It's a commitment back to God. And the if-then language kind of throws us off. Perhaps in English it would be better understood to say, since you promised to do X and I trust you will do X, I will now do why, because I trust you. This understanding of Jacob's vow is further solidified by his promise to give a tenth of all that he has to God in the future. Again, this may sound a little bit like he's wheeling and dealing, right? Make me rich, God, and I'll give you a tenth back. Oh, big deal, Jacob, you get to keep 90%. Well, first off, how many of us in this room give 10% of everything that we have? Right? So, so to say, big deal, Jacob, uh, check your own wallet first, because if you don't give 10%, this is a big deal, okay? You might say, well, Cody, that's not required to do that. The Bible doesn't require us, you know, New Testament Christians, to give 10%, right? Well, since when, since when was faith in Jesus only about doing what was required. And to be clear, and to be clear, Jacob's not required to give 10% here either. 
He chooses to do it. He chooses to do it willingly out of gratitude for what God has promised unconditionally to do for him. And God calls us to, out of gratitude for what he's unconditionally promised to do for us in saving us, to give sacrificially. You see, Jacob is demonstrating the same faith that Abraham did. You remember back when Abraham gave 10% of everything in honor of God to Melchizedek? Because God had already saved him. God had already done the thing. And so Jacob is just sharing in the faith of Abraham now. You say, well, or I would say, you know, so maybe we're not required to give exactly 10%, right? But we are commanded to give sacrificially in the New Testament because of what Christ has done for us. That's how we ought to respond. And might I ask you, when was the last time that you sincerely considered what sacrificial giving looks for you and trusted God to provide for you as you promised rather than trusting in yourself to provide for you? And so before we judge Jacob in this moment, let us use the Bible as a mirror on ourselves instead. But there's more. You're like, oh, Cody, and this is enough. Stop talking about talk, stop talking about money. Well, guess what? From cover to cover, the Bible talks a lot about money. It talks a lot about possessions. And Jesus himself says, Do you trust in me or do you trust in material things? Jesus consistently contrasts our desire and commitment to God against our desire and commitment to material stuff. So I'm not saying anything that the Bible doesn't say consistently. And there's more here. Not only is Jacob not bargaining with God, not only has, uh, has he promised to give 10% of all future things that God gives, right? Even though he doesn't have to. But you need to understand that in that moment, Jacob gives almost everything that he actually has. The stone that he rests his head on, tell me, if he had an extra pair of clothes, if he had an extra set of clothes at all, would he be sleeping with a stone as his pillow? Or would he be using that extra set of clothes? He has nothing. And so it makes sense that he prays, Lord, uh, uh, provide for me something to wear and something to eat. And what does he put on that stone when he sets it up as a pillar? Pours oil on it. He wastes his provision. Food, sustenance to live by on what would be probably a 21-day journey to find a wife. He gives nearly everything that he has that he isn't actually wearing on his person or he doesn't absolutely need to fulfill his mission. And even if we were there, we might say, don't give that. You need that to get there. And yet he trusts God. The one who deceived to get his birthright, who deceived to get the blessing, he's not trusting in material things. He is trusting in God. 
And when our trust is in God, the consistent message of the Bible, cover to cover, is that it will be represented in what we do with the things that we have. Thus, in repentance, we look back and our view of God and ourselves changes. We recognize His holiness and our sin. There's a change of emotion, most notably, it's godly sorrow for our sin. There's a change of will and the inward decision to pursue Christ instead of pursuing the sins and the idols that have littered our past. In faith, there's this conviction of the truth based on the testimony of God and the witness, or the witness to it, either from the, the mouths of God's people, from the words of God's Bible. And the knowledge that, that, that comes from this testimony, it results in our assent and our agreement. Yes, that's true. And then our trust, our trust in those promises that, that will eventually be witnessing what we do in the world with what we have and with who we are. Listen, uh, I'll just talk about these possessions and these material things that might make you a little bit uncomfortable. I do that on purpose. Because I want you to consider, has this happened to you? Do not deceive yourself. Do not deceive other people. It does no good for you in the end. Have you repented? Do you have faith? In the end, that's all that's going to matter. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you trust in his promises? See, it reminds me, this, this story and this, uh, you go, well, well, Cody, this is kind of technical. You know, you get in some technical terms for different things. Well, what does this really matter? Like, if I just love Jesus, is, what is this, why does this matter? Well, well, it reminds us of the basic, the basics that repentance and faith or what Christians do. It's the basic blocking and tackling of Christianity. It's not merely what converts us, but it's the consistent habit of Christians. And Jacob will continue to be faced with his sins on deeper and deeper levels and will continue to repent and believe, and his faith in God will continue to grow through that process. And the same is true for us as well. And if you, were, if you felt conviction based uh, on anything that I have said, listen, the call of Scripture is repent, repent of it, and now trust God with it. And if you do that, the wonderful thing is only Christians do that. So you go, huh, that's happening in my life. God has saved me. It reminds us that salvation isn't something that we did, but it's a wonderful gift of God. For me, it was when I was 11 years old. We'd been going to a new church for some time. I'd been hearing the gospel. I'd been seeing the life that God gives his saints in a way that I had never seen it before in people's lives. And as I lay in my bed one evening, considering the things that I had heard in this very elementary way that an 11-year-old can understand it, right? staring at the ceiling. It was as if God burst through the door of my room, straight into my heart, 
testifying to the truth of the words that I was pondering, calling me to believe and follow him. Now, I couldn't have, I couldn't have put it in those words then. I, wouldn't, I couldn't have understood it in that way, but that is, that is absolutely what he was doing. And I, and I knew in that moment, what I did know is I needed to confess that I was a sinner. I knew I was a sinner. And I needed to trust him. Though externally it may not have looked like much, much, at least initially, the direction of my heart completely changed, and ultimately the direction of my life changed. I didn't understand it for years. So I took an honest look of how a sovereign God saves his people, and it fills me with worship and gratitude and grace for others. It's a marvel of what Christ has done for me. Last thing is this. It reminds us that if it's truly a work of God, if this is truly that God has to call people, that the Spirit must regenerate people, that this is how He works, then not only is anyone a potential candidate for conversion from our perspective, right? But like I said earlier, the only prerequisite in human terms is that you are a sinner. Good news, you're all sinners. God is able to save literally anyone. If God is able to save me, now you think, oh, Cody, but you're a pastor, right? You're you're a good person. Well, yeah, 20, 25 years later or whatever, it's been 27 years later, you know, after God sanctified me, maybe I'm an a, a okay person, but look, like, you talk to my family, they'll tell you how sinful I am. If God can save me, he could save anyone. If God could save you, he could save anyone. So as you pray for whoever that is that your household has chosen to pray for, that they would know Jesus, that they would repent and they would believe, pray knowing that God can save them. Because we only change our way because God makes a way. Now we know it. The question is, will we trust it? Let's pray. God, thank you for your word.